Hello and welcome to the Zapiens Podcast. I'm your host, Lloyd Waits. Today I have a special guest on. Her name is Eleanor Shiki, but uh, I think the best way to introduce her is have her introduce herself. So, Eleanor, I hand it over to you. Hi everyone, my name is Eleanor and I'm a PhD student at the University of Cambridge studying cellular senescence and I'm also the creator behind the Shiki Science Show, a YouTube channel that breaks down science topics from longevity to neuroscience. Thank you, Eleanor. Well, me and Eleanor had a great time talking about science, about life, about YouTube, and even taking a boat cruise. So uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation today. Welcome to the Zapiens Podcast. This is Eleanor Shiki. Hey, Eleanor. How big is So uh, I usually start with uh, just talking about people's research. I know you work in cellular senescence in addition to running your own YouTube channel. So uh, I guess let's start with the science and then move over to the YouTube stuff. Sure, yeah, so um, our lab in general studies cellular senescence. So I always find there are many different ways you can sort of try to describe it, what cellular senescence is, and many people have different um, uh, ideas and backgrounds and how much knowledge they have to understand what senescence is. But effectively, um, I like to think of it as being a sort of um, a cell state or some kind of cell state, um, which basically happens to cells that are somewhat messed up or damaged. So um, I think most people first come across the concept of cellular senescence in terms of replicative senescence. There were some landmark studies done by Leonard Tavlik where he grew some cells in a dish and after so many uh, replications, the cells just stopped dividing um, and he termed this replicative senescence. Um, as senescence itself is often used as a kind of term to describe um, aging. Um, and so cellular senescence is like on an individual cell level. Um, and so what, what it turns out is that the reason cells stop dividing after these many um, replications is due to the shortening of telomeres, which I mean, I could spend like 10 minutes talking about telomeres. Please, you know. go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> okay, um, so yeah, I mean, telomeres are like repetitive sequences found at the end of DNA. So um, our DNA is not circular, it's uh, linear and it's organized into different chromosomes. And so um, if you think about it, if DNA is double-stranded, then at the end you're going to have two exposed ends of DNA, and it might be okay, so what? Um, but uh, normally if the DNA um, gets damaged, you get these so-called double-stranded bricks, and that's kind of like a signal to the cell that there's some kind of damage occurring. And obviously the end of the DNA is just the end, it's not like a damage, but it can in theory signal that way. And the other thing that could happen is you could have two ends of DNA fused aberrantly together, and that would also be bad. And so the kind of like um, protective strategy to avoid this from happening is you have these telomeres and they form this complex with a load of proteins in total referred to as the sheltering complex. And that sort of packages up the ends of DNA to prevent them um, from being recognized as like um, double-stranded breaks. And so, that was a long-winded explanation. Well, effectively, the, the problem is that every time a cell divides, um, the synthesis of DNA is not full, it's not entirely complete, just due to the mechanism in which DNA replicates. And so what that means is that for every cell division, the telomeres gradually get shorter. And so as they get shorter, the, the sheltering complex, these proteins that recognise the, the elements, um, the ability to recognise it declines, and eventually, when they get too short, it's thought that maybe they don't form correctly and then you've got these exposed ends and then 
that signal to the cell that there's now, a, you know, there's exposed ends of DNA and that there's maybe some damage. And that then triggers downstream processes that basically prevent cell fission. Um, but that's just one way in which a cell can become senescent. So again, full circle, that's, um, so one of the hallmarks of a cell that's senescent is that they, they don't replicate. Um, and so another way um, is just general DNA damage in other regions um, can also uh, trigger uh, a cell that enters senescence, could also be like oxidative damage, um, uh, overactivation of oncogenes, so um, proteins that when mutated can cause cancer, that can also cause a cell to enter senescence. Um, and so, yeah, there's many ways a cell can become senescent. The cell as kind of like a protective strategy, so often these cells are mutated and they're damaged. It's, um, if they just kept on replicating, it's likely that they could accumulate more mutations that could make them to proliferate and basically form a tumour. So senescence can be thought of as like a tumour protective mechanism whereby it's like, okay, there's something wrong with a cell, let's put them fighting. And so that's kind of a rationale as to why a cell stops fighting in these different stressful situations. Um, but that's just one hallmark of senescence. Um, senescent cells um, are also very active. And so another hallmark of senescence is the fact that they secrete all of these different uh, proteins and molecules into the surrounding environments. And these, uh, these different factors include things like growth factors, inflammatory factors, um, and other signaling molecules. And so again, you might, it's interesting to describe it, but what is the like physiological relevance to why a cell might now be secreting itself? It seems kind of random. Um, and so again, if we go back to a physiological context and think, why, um, why is there senescent cell in the first place? There's probably some form of damage um, going on in the tissue. And so if one cell is damaged, it's likely that maybe other cells in the proximity are also potentially damaged as well. Or maybe it's um, oh, uh, kind of signaling to the um, surrounding environments that something's wrong and it needs to get fixed. And so you, um, it's currently thought that these growth factors can um, stimulate cells in the proximity to either de-differentiate and gain replicative potential to replicate and replace the damage that's occurred, um, or it can also cause maybe stem cells to replicate and also repair damaged tissue. And then there's all these inflammatory factors, and the rationale behind that is that they might be able to activate the immune cells to come in and then clear the damaged senescent cells. Um, and sort of, it's like a tissue resolution process, is like one kind of hypothesis that there's damage, the cell becomes senescent, it communicates with the environment, to kind of resolve the damage that's occurred, senescent cell goes away, you've got nice normal tissue again. Um, it's when senescent cells aren't clear, it's when things don't get resolved correctly that maybe that can lead to other processes of aging, um, etc. And I feel like that was a long-winded explanation to senescent. <laughs> I mean, something really got onto my project, so <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, have a, I have a couple of questions about what you've already said already. So, um, in terms of senescence, a lot of time people talk about this as one of the uh, kind of the markers of longevity, or one of the anti-markers of longevity, I guess, um, that there's some kind of tipping point between it being an evolutionarily advantageous effect that when we live to 30 years old and we run around being hunter-gatherer compared to now where we live mostly sedentary lifestyle, where is that tipping point? Or like what has changed between us being uh, naturally uh, a hunter-gatherer society to now that makes senescence have such a different effect on our health? Um. 
I don't know if there's like an evolutionary tipping point, if that was your question, but I think um, it's one of those like, one of the theories as to why we maybe age is like the antagonistic play which the senescence on its own does kind of fall into that category, that it's maybe beneficial when we're younger, but maybe less beneficial as we age. Um, but I think there's an argument to be made that senescent cells are always somewhat beneficial um, due to the nature of what they're trying to do. The, the problems arise when there's malfunctions and potentially the clearance and they start to accumulate and then they, they're doing, it's like with cancer cells, they're kind of doing things they shouldn't be doing continuously. And so it's not as I was trying to, you know, I mean, well, I shouldn't talk like this, but they're trying to you know, tell the body that something's maybe not quite right, do something about it. And then if the, the body can't respond to what they're trying to say, then, then they're a problem because they just keep on, you know, making things worse. Um, so I, I, yeah, I don't think there is necessarily a tipping point as, as what you're describing. Well, I guess it would be uh, at a certain. You're saying that uh, senescence at younger ages might be advantageous, but as you get older, it's just you know a problem. I guess at, at what age do we want to start clearing out senescent cells? Okay, so yeah, so um, to go back a little bit, uh, what the study so far has shown is that as we age, we seem to accumulate senescent cells, and so just from kind of basic. Uh, perspective, there's two potential reasons why that might happen. Either A, we're accumulating more senescent cells, or B, the, the clearance mechanisms decreasing, um, or both, maybe big things happening at the same time. And so, um, senescent cells, what I've described them so far is that they seem to be involved in maybe like wound healing. Um, but if we go very back, rewind the clock, they're also involved in like early development and like um, finger formation. Uh, but yeah, so the question is. At what point would it be beneficial to help the body maybe eliminate some senescent cells? Um, and so the current evidence suggests that senescent cells are involved in driving maybe different age-associated diseases. So one of the ones that's commonly spoken about is osteoarthritis. Um, another one where there's like emerging evidence as well is Alzheimer's disease. That um, so in your brain you have neurons and like glial cells. These are things like astrocytes um, and they can also become senescent. And again, if they're secreting inflammatory things in the brain, that might also um, yeah, cause damage to other cells. And there's like emerging evidence from mouse studies that clearing these cells are these senescent cells using so-called senolytics, which are just like small molecules that, in theory, are selective to killing senescent cells and not, not affecting like normal surrounding tissue cells, um, seem to show beneficial effects. And so some studies have done this like throughout the mouse lifespan, like the adult lifespan, and doesn't doesn't seem to be necessarily any negative consequences from fasting earlier. But um, I don't know, like I think it still feels like it's very early stage research, so it's hard to say. I don't think we have the information to say for certain. Okay, this is when you want to start removing senescent cells. And the other reason why I think that's the case is the fact that senescent cells aren't just one entity. It's a very heterogeneous thing that was not fully well defined. Like there isn't like one biomarker of a senescent cell. There's a whole factor, range of factors you have to take into account. And then, yeah, as I said, these senescent cells are very heterogeneous. It depends on how the cell became senescent in the first place. Depends on which, which tissue it's in. Um, and yeah, I think if I think there's possibly going to be what we'll find is that there's like a subset of senescent cells we might want to clear as opposed to others. So for example, maybe you'd want to clear cells that have become senescent because of an oncogene mutation because they're the ones that are more likely to 
over-escaped senescence and potentially form tumours, or they're the ones that are more likely to drive other cells in the proximity to over-replicate. Whereas maybe other forms of senescence are purely trying to just help to resolve this issue. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know, I'm very much speculating at the moment. Um, but yeah, so far I mean, it seems like some elements or maybe like some uh, tissue-specific clearance of cells could be beneficial. I think it's, I'm, the scientist I'm using is too early to, um, to make a certain about anything else going on. So uh, you said we hadn't even gotten into your project. <laughs> okay, so what is your project? Is it primarily focused on longevity or do you do other kinds of biology as well? What's kind of the, the mixture? So um, I have in general, um, we're at the Cancer Research UK Institute. So um, I guess we kind of look at senescence from a cancer perspective, but one of the questions I think that's quite interesting in the lab is why does cancer uh, incidents get more prevalent as we age? Um, and I think there could be some element that senescence has potentially some answers to this question. And so, um, given that we study cancer, one of the most commonly mutated genes seen in different human cancers are mutations in this protein called P53. And so, P53, often referred to as like the guardian of the genome, is a transcription factor protein. And so, what that means is it's a protein that combines the DNA and regulates the expression of other genes. And so, um, P53 tends to get activated under instances of stress. So you see um, senescence is one outcome of stressful situations such as daily damage. And so P53 can help activate different genes that can mediate like the cell cycle rest. Um, and it also has this really complicated um, regulation in some of the aspects of the secretory phenotype as well. And so, um, yeah, so P53 can help drive a cell senescence, also you can cause a cell to enter apoptosis, like a cell killing process, but it's also there to, to activate the repair proteins that can help mediate the damage that's arisen in the first place. It does a lot of things, <laughs> it's a very interesting protein. Um, but as I said, um, maybe unsurprisingly then, given its importance, it's commonly mutated in different human cancers. Um, there's a whole argument to be made about is P53 a driver or a passenger in cancer development, um, but the, the, the data so far shows that it's present in human cancer, so what is the function of these mutations? And so when often people hear mutations, they assume that the gene or the protein is like lost its function because it's mutated, it can't do what it's supposed to do. Um, and so, Commonly, the mutations seen in this gene, P53, are in the DNA binding domain. So this is, in the transcription factor, it needs to bind DNA to actually activate these different genes. And so if there's a mutation, it can no longer effectively bind DNA do this, right? So that's like a loss of function. Um, but there are actually potentially other functionalities of uh, a subset of mutations in P53. Um, and that's because um, these, these uh, mutations they're called like mesenteric mutations. So it's basically you switch just one amino acid to another amino acid, but you still get the full length of protein. Um, it's not like it's truncated or anything like that. And so there's different domains of P53. There's like the DNA binding domain, but there's also um, a domain that enables it to form these um, tetramers. So you get four uh, P53 proteins come together to form a tetramer. And it's actually when it's in that tetrameric form that's thought to activate gene expression. And so um, if you have a cell that has um, like a wild type copy of P53 and a mutant copy, 
they can form these so-called heterocatchments where you've got maybe like two wild types and two mutants. So it's got like some binding because of the wild type proteins have, but defective binding from the mutants. And instead of a pure loss of function, that could be considered what's known as a dominant negative effect. Um, because effectively the mutant through binding to the wild type protein is sort of like um, sequestering it maybe and sort of preventing the wild type doing from the things it should be doing, which is activating gene expression. And then the final um, functionality of these mutations in P53 are alkana functions. So it's doing something new um, and different. Um, and so these are things that the mutated P53 protein does on its own, irrespective of wild type. And so um, one of the current mechanisms through which gain of function might be occurring is that um, these mutations in P53, these mutated proteins, are binding to other transcription factors present in the cell and sort of like indirectly activating gene expression. And so the, the question is, through what through which of these mechanisms is most of like the, the bad things happening? Like, is, is it mainly just purely muscle function or is it these gain of function activities? And it feels like a very fundamental question, but I, like, despite how many studies there are on PP3, we still don't really understand how it's acting within a cell. Um, and it can be really obviously important to understand this just from like developing new therapies or like trying to understand what causes um, tumor formation in the first place. And so to come back to senescence, um, yeah, this feels kind of like a sidetrack. So obviously, um, senescence um, is what we like to consider like a chronic stress situation. Um, there's like a persistent DNA damage response that's occurring within the cell. Whereas most studies to understand uh, mutant P53 have been done more in like acute stress responses. So that's when, um, like within the first 24 to 48 hours of like um, a DNA damage event, um, and so I, I guess I like to think that the chronic stress situation is something that's kind of unexplored, but maybe more pathologically relevant because um, we actually all, like I could, you know, I don't want to fact anything, but I'm pretty certain at least in some of ourselves, we have already mutations in P53. Um, and so we have two alleles, two copies of P53. So you can have a cell that has one wild type and one mutant. Um, and this is actually the kind of allele setup that I studied, the heterocyber state. And so the question is, if we have these mutations, why don't we have cancer? And is there something about these cells? Um, could we clear them? Would that be effective to kind of be a, a um, preventative um, treatment for um, for cancer development? And but yeah, yeah. So obviously, our cells also. I'm sorry, cells. clearing the, the specific proteins or the cells with the mutant. The cells. Okay, yeah. yeah. I was going to say that would be going somewhere that you could clear out the individual proteins. Well, that said, there's actually some small molecules they've developed that can bind to the mutant wild type, um, the mutant P53 protein, and actually convert it to the wild type confirmation. Okay. So I mean, these these mutations in P53, it's just one amino acid, which is like, you know, protein. I don't know, it could be, um, you know, hundreds of amino acids, well, hundreds of thousands, and so just having one amino acid change has this huge ramifications. For the functionality, and so um, it's thought that this one amino acid change just slightly alters the conformation of the protein, which is why it can't bind DNA effectively. So if you can find a small molecule that perturbs that conformation, it might be able to like rectify the, the DNA binding domain. Isn't that kind of a, kind of a band aid though? Because then you would be you would be altering the protein, but then you would still have the RNA that is transcripting the same faulty P53 protein. Yeah. So the rationale behind this approach is that um, because 
in these cells where you have a mutant is kind of like more stable so it's like a high abundance in the cell and so when a cell has very high abundance of pp3 it can sometimes activate like apoptosis the cell coding mechanism so the idea is that you add this drug it switches the mutant conformation and then you have a cell with loads of pp3 that's likely to kill itself but so far like um based on like the the results this approach doesn't seem to be necessarily that effective unfortunately um and that could be as you say because it Stable, it makes it wild type, but then the cell is still there, as you say, and it's still making more mutants. So you would have to either find someone to continuously um, apply it. So, yeah, so maybe that isn't the most hopeful approach, which is why it's interesting to further understand what these, like, these um, heterozygous cells that we, I guess, effectively accumulate um, as we age, what they're doing, and if there's something we can do to, yeah, um, potentially clear them or to prevent them getting a second mutation and stuff like that. So, I mean, a lot of what you're saying is that it seems like there's a lot of connection between longevity research and cancer research. Um, can you explain why you think that is? So sure. I mean, as I said already, like, cancer is something that seems to get more prevalent as we age. Um, mm -hmm. And there seems to me, like, accumulating evidence that's in essence plays a role not only in the initial um, development of cancer, but also once you've got some mutated cells with these, like, inflammatory factors can actually drive uh, further um, like growth of the tumor and so there's like that connection um and then yeah i, I don't i mean that is the connection right and then like uh with pvc3 being involved in both processes and i guess the other connection of things like telomere shortening um being connected is one of the hallmarks of aging but also the fact that as it shortens it can induce senescence and so i mean i, I like to think that there's tons of overlap between different disciplines and i think that's one of the hardest things when Often you approach biology, you learn about neuroscience, you learn about cell biology, you learn about developmental cancer. But actually, they're all kind of operating through the same fundamental principles of like gene expression and protein interactions. And I think that um, it's kind of good to have an understanding of like the overlap between these different areas. So, I mean, you've had a lot of interest on your YouTube channel, for example, in longevity work. Uh, you obviously have some investment in cancer research. Um, so, where do you want to go with it? Do you want to stick more on the cancer research side, or after you finish your, your PhD, do you plan on going more towards uh, longevity side? And if so, what kind of technologies would you think are the most interesting? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, um, I love learning, which is like, <laughs> I think a lot of people do. And so, I mean, to some extent, I, I haven't made my mind up entirely what I want to do yet. But I also feel like I want to learn like different techniques or like have a different perspective of seeing the same problem. So obviously I was trained as like a biochemist, and I think that there's a lot to be like, um, I guess like computational scientists or physicists or like um, even different areas of biology, like they or geneticists, they view the same like problem from a different perspective just because of the way that they would ask the question and the techniques they would use to address it. And so I'm kind of also keen to learn more like computational approaches to understanding biology and like modeling and being able to develop more quantitative measurements so that we can get the most information out of the cell as possible because I think um yeah it's gonna it's I think the current limitations with like research in general is like um either we get too much information and we didn't have to do with it like so I've got a lot of data that's like already sequencing proteomics data and I'm like wow there's <laughs> a lot for like my brain to comprehend and like depending on um there's just like many ways I could 
put that data into like a graph or a format and have like a very like different story come out of it. So I think there's a, like that's there needs to be better ways to um, interpret the data we collect. But I also think that there's ways we should be able to get better quality data as well, or at least more quantitative data. Um, so I'm just kind of interested in learning more about how we can do that. And then again, coming back to longevity and how I think that many different disciplines of biology link back to longevity. So I feel like inevitably, whatever I decide to do, I will find some link that it's associated with. So um, I think for me, I'll just go where my curiosity takes me and um, learn something. And yeah, I'm always, yeah, they, I don't really have a good answer, but um, the interest won't go away for certain. Um, and yeah, I think I just want to, I mean, I like CRISP is another example, right? I mean, that came from studying some obscure like sequences and they really knew what they were doing. And then I love the fact that you can just find biology in many different species or different systems and apply it for something novel. Um, so I'd like to argue that no matter what I end up doing, I'll probably find some way to relate it back um, to long-term or like cancer research. I had a, a friend in, in college who said, well, well you, must, you must love learning, you, do all, you watch all these podcasts, you read all these papers and stuff. I said, no, I don't like learning, I like knowing things. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think that's kind of an important distinction to make sometimes because I, I think like people get so tied up in learning that they might not always think of the best way to learn the information. Right? Um, and so, I mean, there's 50 different ways to learn the, the same thing. I mean, you, you go on YouTube, you go on, uh, you search research articles. Like, I try and, and read articles on cellular senescence, I get totally lost. I have no idea what's going on. But then I go to the the Shiki Science Show and I see an explanation on, on cellular senescence and I'm able to understand it and then go back to the research paper and, and kind of understand what their actual results were. Um, so how did learning about all these things and this love of learning kind of turn into you being an online educator? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think a part of me always liked teaching. I think, I mean, if, if anything, when I think back to how I did my exams and revised myself, it, there was also you go to class and your teachers tell you stuff. But I still think a large element of my own personal learning has come from like self-teaching. Like I self-taught myself a lot of things. And so I think, I you know, when you teach yourself stuff, you're then, I forget the exact phrasing, but if you can teach yourself something, then you can teach it to other people. Or maybe it's your background. I don't know. But like, I've always just liked teaching. Um, and I will say just like writing and trying to express my thoughts in different ways. And so naturally, like when I started undergrad, I wanted to like just write about cool science and share it with people. And so um, in my first year of undergrad, I like signed up to join this journal, journal of young investigators. But what I would do is, as a journalist, I would read a paper and try and like summarize it in some kind of like I'm like a a a, like a normal like short and news and news sort of perspective, like a summary of what the research paper was doing. Then um, I worked with like an editor who would then teach me how to like write with the active voice or like how to correctly describe science without being misleading or using too much jargon and stuff like that. Um, so I did that for like a couple of years um, and then eventually I switched from being the, the journalist to being the editor because by that point apparently my English grammar was better, I don't know, but like I ended up being the editor and so that was all super interesting process. And then it got to the point where I was like, 
I got very restricted in terms of when I could write or when I could do this. I was like, why not just make my own blog and write when I feel like it and have more say over the topics I want to talk about. Um, so then I started a shaky science blog. Um, not quite so catchy as my YouTube Alex thing, but um, so that's when I had like a WordPress like um, blog sort of thing where I... Is this still up by the way? <laughs> it is, okay. yeah. So I mean, it's not going to take me for a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, it does still exist. Um, I'm sure some of them are quite hilarious if you went back far enough. Um, <clears throat> it was the same sort of thing, like often as part of my degree, I'd read different papers. Um, and it's, I think, you know, if you read stuff and it goes in one and straight out of the other. Like, I could read a paper one week and have no idea what it was the next week. And so I always treated the blog as, like, some kind of record of things I read. And, and then it was, like, summarised in a way that I understood. So if I went back and read it, like, a year or two later, I'd instantly go, oh, yeah, that was that paper. And it would sort of, like, come back to me. Um, and so that was, like, the motivation for that as well, like, why I had it. Especially because, like, when a lot of my undergrad was, like, writing essays, that's how we got graded. So having, like, extra reading material, like was kind of useful, so it was kind of like a sort of um, online documentation with like extra revision notes as well, I could say. But um, I it was more just, I enjoyed doing it as well. Um, but as part of my blog, um, I also drew like diagrams to go with it. I think I've always, I mean, my, one of my, I always wanted to do many different things when I was a kid, but one of them was an artist. When I got to like secondary school, I realized I wasn't that good at drawing. I was very good at like very simple graphics drawings. And so I think naturally that's kind of the approach I take. Um, but they actually kind of work quite well for describing clients. So I used to do a lot of like kind of quick sketches um, to go along with these different research papers that I read. And yeah, so um, I already had like a drawing tablet that I could connect like my laptop and do these sort of drawings. Um, but around this sort of time, I was like, you know, no one's reading this blog, like, he was very low-key, and I was always like, I'm sure I'd probably get a bigger audience if I took it somewhere like YouTube, but it's just like naturally more people online browsing things. Um, the question was then, how would I go about doing this? Because say if I just, you know, write um, a short blog article and maybe have one drawing. And I thought about the idea of like making PowerPoint presentations and then just sort of doing a voiceover with those. But then I wasn't, it was harder to then build in like the, the drawings that I do. Um, and it felt like it would take a very long time to make these PowerPoints and stuff like that. So I had the the name already by this point, the Shiki Science Show, because I just kind of felt fun. Um, but I was just like, no, the PowerPoint's not gonna work. So for a year, like the idea was kind of shelved. Um, and then I revisited it. Like now we're talking 2019, I was finishing up my master's and I was like, okay, I feel like I now have the time to a, work on this more and commit to it better. And so um, I think I just had the idea as I was probably making the blog, as I was drawing it out, that would it not be fun if I just recorded myself as I did this? Um, as well, I think I was watching a lot of YouTube at the time, and there's, I think it's like Improvement Pill or something. There's like, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but like, there's like uh, animated hand, and you see them like draw it so yeah, yeah. And I think I thought, oh yeah, I could do that, but then I wouldn't, I obviously I couldn't. At the time, I couldn't afford for whatever equipment that they were using to do these, like, with fancy Yeah, like some weird, like, subscription there model some, software, like, yeah. and they only have, like, certain things that you can draw, and then well, the whole was, time you got a hand on top of whatever you're well, trying yeah, to show. Well, yeah, well, I was like, that's yeah. not my hand, but it doesn't look like my hand. So, yeah. exactly, as you say, there's, like, limited things you can draw out. And I was like, right. that's going to be, that'll be terrible for science, at least what I'm trying to do. So I thought, okay, I'll just have to do my own Torgia fashion, which is basically what I did. And so, like, I just recorded myself as I drew. Um, and then, 
yeah, the, I would like write out a kind of brief like blog post and just sort of ad lib initially. It's way more scripted now than than it was when I started. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's pretty much where it kind of stemmed from. And then again, like YouTube, I think I had high expectations for how fast it would grow. And then within the first like uh, six months, I managed to get like ninety subscribers, which I anyway I was hoping to get at least five hundred. <laughs> um, but then I see. That wasn't really the motivation for what I was doing it, was more I just enjoyed doing it. Um, and I thought, okay, so what? You know, it's just a little thing I do on the side of my PhD that I like doing. I'll just do it regardless. And it's just been great to see it kind of like growing since then. So, when did it really start to take off? Hmm, I would, I mean, that was like one video I made during those first six months on prime editing, which was like, I think just because no one, it was like a very novel technique, it was like a gene editing technique that had just. Developed and so there was no videos on YouTube about it. So naturally, I think I found some audience at this point. But still, like, yeah, the channel didn't grow that much. Probably until like when COVID hit and I had more time. Obviously, being a white lab scientist in the first year of my PhD, I couldn't really do too much um, besides like read papers during that time. And so I had more time to work on like animations and create like the audio equipment, etc. And I think as the quality grew and I was bashing out more videos, it kind of naturally grew an audience. Was there like a, a synergistic effect that as you kind of forced yourself to really understand these papers to be able to explain them, do you think that helped you with your thesis work? Um, I'd like to think so. I, I tell myself this. <laughs> it's hard to say because obviously it takes so long to read a paper in that much detail. And as I said, I studied this protein PD3, which if you ever like put into um, scholar, the legal scholar or whatever, there's like a gazillion papers on this protein. Um, so I always feel like, you know, I can spend a lot of time digging deep into one paper, but there's all these other papers that I just won't have time to read because I'm spending so much time on one paper. Um, it's hard to get that balance right because I feel like it's kind of superficial to just read an abstract to a paper because, and that's, well, it's hard to say because there are obviously there's some papers that are more relevant to your research than others. And so there are some papers where it's like, I really should read this in, in detail, but there is still, a lot of papers on that on that list that I've not got around to reading deeply about because I'm probably reading other things that aren't quite so related to my, my PhD project that I'm doing to make a video. Um, but I, I mean, yeah, maybe I'm just a bad PhD student, but I just enjoy <laughs> doing reading other things. Um, and I think it will benefit me a long time um, because I think a lot of like innovation in science comes from connecting dots in different disciplines, and so. Um, maybe if like at the moment it probably won't help me too much with my own PhD project, but it might give me ideas for like a place or some further research I did that later on online will be really useful that I like learn this. I mean, I would say that my undergrad course in biochemistry just exposed me to so many different um, aspects of biology, which I you know still find really useful. Um, like I yeah, I think I can hold a conversation with most biologists, no matter what like kind of background they're in, just because of like the exposure I've had to different topics. And for me, I think that's more meaningful than just being a complete specialist in one particular thing. Um, do people in your lab know that you have this, this YouTube channel? Does your PI know? Okay. Of course, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> the thing is, though, when I started it, um, so I said I started the, the YouTube in 2019, like, I think it was around June 2019. I actually think it's like my three year birthday in like a couple of days. Oh, wow. Um, Congratulations. And, so, <laughs> um, and then obviously I started my PhD in October. So I think, it, I think, uh, yeah, I was pretty upfront that I had it, but no one really 
I wouldn't be endorsed. Like, I think people would think, look at me and go, you should not have done like a book while I'm like proper, like <laughs> into reading and stuff as a kid. But I hated reading when I was younger. Um, which is like looking back, I, I like, I don't hate myself, but I feel like I should have read more than I did when I was younger. Because um, instead I'd be outdoors, like cycling about or playing football with my brothers. So I was very outdoors sort of person. Um, and yeah, so I just obviously played football at school. And in the UK, it was like football's one of our main sports. Um, played at university as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm not the best. I just like doing it. Um, and, but obviously, like, naturally, I, I was good at science and I wanted to do that further in my studies. Sounds like I, I was kind of a dork when I was a kid. I wasn't uh, one that was outside all the time, but I, I had a passion for just playing video games or watching movies. But I also hated reading, but I think that was more because I, I didn't get along with my English teachers when I was in high school. <laughs> um, so where do you where do you see this going uh, with between the Sheepy Science Show between your research? Are you thinking of uh, going to industry and academia? You mentioned offline of maybe even starting a company. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, well, yeah. So this is like kind of I feel like I'm in this like transition state where I'm trying to work all these things out at the moment. Um, I guess like a couple of years ago, or well, not like like a year ago, I was maybe considering potentially full time science communication, but. I think I've taken this last year to really think that that probably at the moment isn't something I want to do. Um, partly because I think a lot of what I communicate benefits from what I gain from having first-hand exposure to different experimental techniques. That plus the fact that now I've got some data coming from my projects, um, like my PhD is starting to have a bit of success. I'm more like, yeah, I love science. I love doing like academic research. Um, and then obviously, then there's, yeah, there's many emerging opportunities, especially in biotech at the moment. So. Um, like my eyes are always aiming to different things and uh, yeah as we were discussing offline for me it's more about finding something that I find interesting which is as we said already it's like a lot of things so that's a, a hard decision um, but finding the right team of people to work with I think mean, that's more important um, and then it's like irrespective of which kind of setting that ends up being in it's more about the science and the people I work with. So uh, as you move forward do you think you're I know you mentioned that people you work with is very important, but what about uh, the techniques that are being used? Do you think you're going to continue with uh, kind of the P53 and looking into senescence, or what about things like Yamanaka factors that you've talked a lot about on your channel, or even uh, sirtuins and NAD plus boosters or something like that? Um, some elements of me would love to just do something completely different to anything, like and just explore things that people haven't maybe, like have previously like disregarded, just because why not? Um, obviously, like I, if I want to be a postdoc first, then I'm limited by what funding is already available for like the more of the hot topics. So maybe I will just naturally fall into these things. Um, for sure, I think like I will take the skills I've learned from my PhD, which is obviously senescence and P C three and the assays that I use in my um, my PhD, such as like RNA sequencing, um, profiling where these different proteins are binding to DNA, looking at the acceptability of the chromosomes to how DNA is packaged in a cell. And applying that to novel contexts, but I also want to use my next step as like a learning stone as well. Stepping to, I don't know what the phrase is, but I'm, I want to learn from other people and like learn new techniques. So I'm definitely open to that. I just haven't really worked out exactly what it's going to do yet. So uh, one thing that's different about you compared to a lot of the other people we've had on the show is we have a lot of professors or like an industry professional, but you're a graduate student, and so you kind of have a, a very broad view of the field and kind of starry-eyed about how everything is going. Do you think that you have this uh, different perspective and kind of a unique perspective from 
a lot of people that you work with. Um, well, I guess a lot of people I work with are like, well, other PhD students and people in my lab. So as in a lab, we have that different range of perspectives. Like you, you know, have meetings with your PI, you work with the postdocs, you work with other PhD students. And like, even this summer, I'm gonna get an undergrad, yeah, an undergrad student for summer students. And like, that will provide a completely new perspective as well, because often, I mean, having done summer projects myself, you often ask these like really naive questions that can often be the best questions to ask. Um, so, I, yeah, I think my perspective has also changed, like, even from when I started my PhD to where I am now, like, maybe I'm less naive in certain things, but I'm aware of, like, other uh, areas of, like, how science works. Um, I, I guess I, I, I understood less about, like, the funding procedures before. Um, I was just like, why can't we just do this? Or, like, why can't I do this fancy experiment? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I don't know, I mean... There's a lot of, I've also been more exposed like things that I think could be done better in science. Um, with like just the system and how you progress in science based on like the number of citations you have. Whilst like my brain's just like, that makes no sense. Like surely it should be based on like your qualities and uh, expertise of doing the science. Um, so it's also, yeah, I think maybe I have a new perspective, maybe it's like a generational thing as well. Like, um, yeah, I don't know, but yeah. Um, so, what do you think of a lot of the, the kind of biotech and longevity industries that have been popping up recently? I mean, Alto's Labs obviously has a lot of buzz around it from its, its massive investment. Then you also have groups like Calico and even some of the older school biotech companies like Pfizer are starting to kind of get their, their hands on me. So, uh, is that something that you would ever consider doing and working with a biotech company? Is that, uh, do you think they're going in the right direction, uh, in your opinion, as a, as a graduate student? or? Um, what are some of the interesting projects that you think that they're doing, perspectives that they have? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so for sure, I am considering maybe going biotech. Um, I'm, I also feel like inevitably how long we are living now and how long our careers are going to be now, that at least for sure some of my life is probably going to be spent in some biotech um, company. Going back to things like outsource and all these emerging companies, I think, of course, it's exciting. They've like, attracted some of the biggest names in the research field at the moment to really help to, to drive the field forward that it's hard not to be excited about what they could do with all this additional funding. Um, so I think it's hard to say for certain if they're going in the right direction, maybe we're, I, again, I forgot what the phrase is, but like, maybe we're so distracted by all following the same things like cellular reprogramming and MF practice that we're forgetting about other fundamental aspects of biology that could also be interesting to follow up. Um, so maybe it's like an element of them, everyone's just sort of following the crowd and that's not necessarily the best thing to do. But for sure, I think there's some, there'll, there'll be some benefit we gain from doing these approaches, at least based on the current data so far. Um, yeah, and I guess with more people following the same thing, maybe they won't all succeed, but some of them might succeed. And so there is reason to be optimistic. I just think it's also important to realise that there are also many other areas of biology that should also be worth investigating. So this is a bit of a fluffy question, but so uh, you hear sometimes that a lot of scientific discoveries, some of the biggest ones, like you mentioned CRISPR earlier, aren't really found on purpose. It's not like someone gave someone a million dollars and said, go find this thing that cuts up your DNA at these points. Um, so based on kind of what you were just saying, that everyone might be following this goal of using Yamanaka factors or doing cellular reprogramming, um, do you think this necessarily would be the best approach, or do you think maybe a better approach just to kind of have everyone follow what they think is cool and whatever pops out, pops out? I mean, because I 
have the mindset of the latter option, I would yeah. sure say yes. <laughs> we could just have like funding to do whatever in travel would, would be interesting. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's much more to say. I mean, I think it would be bad if we all had that mindset because for sure someone has to like stick to their guns to be like, we're doing this, we're going to work it out and see if something beneficial comes from it. But I definitely fall into the camp of the latter strategy of just being like, oh, let me do this. Um, because as you say, it's, you never really know where the um, the they, like the unexpected ideas come from. Because even in my own projects, I feel like, you know, I can have a hypothesis about what I expect from my data or like um, what I think might happen. And then my data comes through and it's completely different to what I thought. And I'm like, oh. And so it's very hard to predict necessarily what might happen, especially in biology. And I feel like there's so much and like different species and like just, just so much we still don't understand um like even within the human biology like you, we have all these different genes like twenty thousand genes um even more proteins because of the way you get different protein isoforms and different modifications we don't know what all of them do like why is there not some massive project just to really work out what these different proteins do and the reason why it's more complicated than just like an individual Let's look at this protein, let's look at this one. It's because proteins interact with, with other proteins. And so like one cell type might have this combination of proteins expressed, and another cell type feels a bit different. And how like the setting, the context also really influences the functionality, like even though that's these misidentifications, like there's so much still to understand just at the basic biology level that whether or not it leads to therapeutics, I don't know, but it would just be kind of cool to understand this, to understand how we function better. So I guess, why is it that you do research? So like for me personally, I, I've always felt like I am capable of making a positive difference. And so I am morally obligated to try and build something that makes the world a better place that didn't either uh, try and increase my lifespan, someone else's lifespan, generate medicine, lead to some physical understanding at least of future technologies. And I've always kind of felt like this is, this is an obligation that I have as, a, as, a, as an individual. But it seems like more that you're just kind of driven by interest and that you think this is this is fun. Yeah, I mean, for sure that's there, that is an yeah. element. But at the same time, you know, I always, like, because you never know where the real insight for therapeutic potential can come from, I think it's, I mean, I know that that's also potential in the back of my head sort of thing. And, like, the idea that you build upon the shoulders of giants, that's right, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and how, like, you never know what information I find out could be useful for someone else, right? And how, um, the, we're just quite trying to put this like jigsaw together of all these different puzzle pieces and that my my contribution might be tiny but it's still that sort of thing um and yeah i don't know i mean if you think about a lot of jobs and like like why would you do it and i didn't actually join to the, the possibilities of doing scientific research so you think that kind of a, a random walk can sometimes get you to the best destination better than trying to have it directed kind of if you have the parameter space of all different possible options that you can do, sometimes a random walk will get you to a better maxima than trying to go in a certain direction, which might not be the best. For sure, and actually the fact that you brought up random walk reminds me of like chemotaxis and like bacteria, and they actually have this thing called like, it's called like the bias random walk, where, um, because bacteria are so small, and you have like a chemical gradient of like a food source or something, mm -hmm. they're too small to be able to, by their size, detect where the highest concentration of that substance is. So what they do is they have this really clever system to just like kind of bias random walk where like over time they gradually go in the right direction, but it looks really random. And so I like to think that my life's a bit like that. Like it's, <laughs> it's like random, but it's some, somehow biased. Like I'm being somewhat, there's no where it is yet. We're all bacteria. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
fun fact about the, the shoulders of giants quote. So people use that quote all the time. But, <laughs> so no, 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 it's, it's, it's funny because there's a bit of a history behind it that uh, a lot of people don't know. So Newton said that when he was talking about some of the laws that he had discovered, but it's actually, um, he did that as a dig to Robert Hooke, you know, like Hooke's law with springs, um, because he said that he kind of snickered and looked over at Hooke, because Hooke is a very short person at the time. So it was just like a dig, be like, oh, I've stood on the shoulders of giants. Like, like <laughs> short guy, Robert Hooke over there. Um, so I always kind of chuckle when people are like, oh, this is, he was such a humble individual. It's like, no, he was actually kind of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so in terms of uh, science education, um, you a lot of your videos, uh, you do have some in-person inter in interviews, you have some online, you have online interviews, and uh, a lot of them are animated. And you mentioned kind of your, your talking to graphic design. Um, do you think it's easier to do one or the other? Do you have a preference on that type of video? Um, I really enjoy doing both of them. Like, they're, they're very different how I, how I approach them. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, it's always amazing to be able to have the opportunity to talk like, like the leaders in the field. And you have all this extensive knowledge, and I'm really barking at some interesting questions. So I, I treat them as like being very different things. It's just like, that's one element of something that I get to do, which is really cool. But also, like doing the like more animated videos that kind of uses a whole different skill set, right? It's like my more creativity and expression side. Whereas like an interview is more like reading their material and like trying to come up with good questions that not only would be interesting for me to know the answer to, but also interesting for them to talk about. Um, that maybe helps them as well, like think about their own research differently. So I think they're very different aspects, and it's kind of cool to be able to, to balance both. Do you notice if one is more successful than the other? Um, I mean, majority of my videos are still like the animated ones as opposed to the interviews. And then the interviews themselves, they, they vary. Um, you know, I like to think that, you know, my videos are great. So I mean, like, right in some way, there is like, obviously, varying interests in different topics. But uh, it's funny because like, some of the videos I'm most proud of are the ones that have like the smallest number of views. And I'm like, what that lot, really? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, kind of a personal question, do you feel better on or off camera? Because I know, like, personally, I, I might not be the best interviewer, but I'm a way worse artist. So, I don't have a choice, I kind of, if I want to do interviews like this, I have to be on camera. Um, but I know for some of our videos, Bobby, for example, has done drawings to explain okay. how, how things work out. Um, so, do you think you feel more comfortable being able to draw yourself with your, your DNA hair? Or do you think you feel more comfortable you know, being in person and being on camera? Um, I guess, yeah, for sure, like, I, I mean, if you listen to a couple of interviews I've done, um, like, a while ago, like, I was always, it, it, I obviously did the animations before I was appearing on the, the Sheet of Science show, so I think there was, like, a bit of, like, okay, I don't, I didn't feel comfortable maybe exposing, like, my real identity online, I mean, that's always something I'm a little bit concerned about, but I'm just doing it now, um, and also, I guess, like, I created the, the animated character to look a little bit like myself, so I kind of, you know, stabbed myself in the foot with that, anyway. <laughs> Um, but I guess, yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm hidden behind, um, it's not like, I don't really edit my interviews, so it's pretty much like live, although it's not live, but it feels live because it's not, I don't really cut stuff out. Um, whereas like my animated videos are more polished, I suppose, but like I, you know, tweak the audio, cut out all my, but actually listening, when I, uh, editing my audio is complete fun because I just talk random stuff sometimes. And I have to like listen back to it and go like, what, what was I thinking? And I just have to cut it out. And I, um, 
Yeah, I think it would be very entertaining if I did back them in, but obviously in terms of like making polished videos that people actually want to listen to, I have to get rid of it. But um, yeah, obviously there's the element of I'm in control of how it's edited and can just do it in my own time. And if something goes wrong, I can just restart it. Um, I mean, I'm not like a perfectionist when it comes to making the videos. I kind of know they could be better, but like if it does the job of what I want it to be, which is to explain the concept, then I'm pretty content with that. Um, and so, yeah, I think naturally because I've done more interviews now, I do feel more comfortable um, talking and being like live and stuff. Um, I think we all get nervous to some extent, and I guess it does depend on who you're talking to or like how much you might idolize someone. So there's that element as well. But yeah, I think I'm getting better um, in both, hopefully. But yeah. I always get impressed when you're able to crack a joke to a virtual audience. And and laugh at your own jokes and your and your videos. That's always kind of tricky, right? It's like you don't know if the joke's gonna land because you're just putting it on YouTube. But also <laughs> the fact that like because it's not done at the same time, right? So like sometimes the jokes may be more of an order order audio okay, yeah. an audio joke. Um and then sometimes it's more of a joke and whatever it's like the way I've animated it or the way I've like edited it together. And so sometimes I do like in advance say something funny or like plan to say something funny. But sometimes if I've already thought through something funny, I have to then, I already know the punchline sort of thing, so I then have to like record myself saying it like it's funny, but I already know, like it was like, it's not like in the moment. So sometimes the funny things are just like these sort of ad-lib moments that just sort of happen and I just sort of like, okay, I'll just keep it in. Um, but yeah, so it also depends on what mood I'm in. Like, I mean, I am generally quite an optimistic, sort of like quite animated person for that time, but then sometimes, you know, maybe it's a bit grotty on a Saturday morning and I'm tired. And like maybe I don't feel so lively in the, the video recording. And so yeah, there's a range of factors that come into it. But you have a sassy video playlist of, of Alright, fine, here's here's your sort two wins. I think if I did that there, it would be quite funny. Like <laughs> I don't know. Um, But like I, I know when I shoot my intros where it's just it's just me, I have no one that I'm talking to. It's hard. I have to shoot them like five times because I, I stutter, I mumble, and even even just having a, a person across from me makes it a little easier to make the communication make more sense. Uh, how do you decide a lot of your topics? I know it's, you said that you get it from reading research papers, but like how do you decide which research papers to read? Yeah, so I actually have like a massive list of topics I'm still wanting to talk about. And so I actually kind of, even though we've kind of split my videos into like interviews and animated videos, I would actually sort of subdivide my animated videos as well. Like either I tend to just focus on a kind of recent publication that maybe a lot of people are already talking about, I've seen it on Twitter, or like it's related to my own research. And I'm like, okay, we'll just focus on this one paper and explain it, do like a kind of breakdown. Um, the videos I actually prefer doing are the ones that take me a lot longer to do, which are like what I would kind of describe as animated review articles where I've like read a, a bunch of different literature and like kind of pulled my thoughts and other people's thoughts into one video. Because um, then you can do like a deep dive, not into a paper, but into a topic. Um, and I quite like doing those, but they take a lot longer to do. And then the last kind of more, I have like a, also like some random videos, um, like either book reviews or like just, uh, this is like related to science, but it doesn't really fall into the other two categories. Um, but yeah, I mean, I what I've noticed more recently is I, because my time is getting increasingly drawn to like focusing my PhD project or like elsewhere, that I want to be proud of the videos I make or like I want to be motivated to make them. And as I said, I prefer the ones that take longer to make. 
And so I think inevitably what will happen is over time, I would rather make like one video a month, but make sure it's a video that I like had great fun making. Like it was something really cool to give massive feedback into, as opposed to what I think I did previously, which is I just try and bash out a video each week, which obviously I guess helps grow my channel, but I'm pretty content with the size that it is. I mean, it could go back to zero, I wouldn't really care, and I'm still doing the same thing. So um, I think I'd rather just spend more time learning about topics I find interesting and finding, as I said, going back to why I had the blog, just finding some way or format of compressing my ideas into one and having that kind of like memory or like time of my life where I understood this concept so that I could go back to at any time in the future and be like, oh yeah, I remember learning about this and just obviously have it there for other people to learn from as well. But that's my, the appetite at the moment. So how do you feel about other people in kind of a similar space? Like I know you've been on uh, Brad Stanfield's show, um, but there's, uh, a plethora of, of now science podcasters and even longevity podcasters in kind of a specific niche. Like there's David Sinclair's, of course, and then you also have like uh, Veritasium, Minute Physics, PBS Space Time, like all of these little uh, educational YouTube channels that have popped up. And uh, have you communicated with a bunch of other ones other than our, us and Brad, of course? Um, to be honest, like. It's not like I'm antisocial, but I guess not really, no. Um, I somehow I do watch, like, one that I've always enjoyed watching, like, another about, like, eye biology. Like, I like how we have these, like, kind of 30-minute lectures and stuff like that. The other one's actually, ironically, at IT. They have all their, like, a lot of their lectures are just published online, which is incredible. Um, I think there isn't, like, the reason why I probably haven't reached out to too many other people is that no one really does the same sort of thing as me or, like, has the same sort of perspective where I felt like, um, I'm just in my own weird niche of YouTube, like my own little bubble, unfortunately. I mean, I welcome more people to join it, but I think it's just a weird, like, because the way I make the videos is like a weird subset of my skills, like the animation interest, the graphic design, um, script writing, and just, I guess, like the scientific knowledge to break down a paper. Um, that it's, yeah, I think there hasn't been other channels that I feel like have done something similar, but I mean, I like to have my own approach. I mean, it's amazing that people actually like my content because I feel like it's such a, it's kind of, I made it to kind of resonate with how I approach uh, different topics. So if that also helps other people, then that's great. And so I'm always amazed that, yeah, people actually watch my videos, especially with my terrible humor as well. But um, yeah, so I, I, um, I would be happy to like, try and collaborate more with other people. Like I did work a bit with Lee, the Lifespan um, Extension Advocacy Foundation. Um, was, they helped me to bring my channel, so I should mention that. Um, they used to like promote my videos and stuff, which really helped me in the early days. Um, which is maybe also why I guess I geared a little bit to longevity because that was their interest. And if they were going to help me, you know, grow as a channel, then it would make sense to also make videos in the same, um, like aligned video uh, concepts with them. So I don't, I don't think this is an insult, but uh, why do you think that you're qualified to talk on a lot of these topics? Yeah, I mean, I still don't. I mean, I still have a huge imposter syndrome. I mean, part of the reason why, it wasn't just the time and like animation reason why I waited to ask my masters. It was also like, I didn't, I say, feel qualified to talk about it. And I thought, okay, I'll wait until I got my masters and like, maybe I got a pretty good grade. But like, I mean, I, even despite getting a really good grade and getting my masters, I still didn't really feel like I can stand there and talk about science. I mean, I think that's some of my early content and probably some of my blogs, they're not perfect. They probably, they didn't get it completely correct. If anything, the best person to explain the science is the person who wrote the paper. Um, but I'm always open to like criticism or like um, constructive criticism, I should say. Um, 
like I know that what I say is not 100% correct, but I try as much as I can to be transparent about that and to not like um, tell people what to do or what to follow. Like I want to present them the science and then it's up to them to make the decisions of how they interpret the information. I have a bit of a confession to make in that I do these interviews because I don't feel comfortable myself trying to explain the science because every time I try to, I, I just think of my advisor in my ear and say, oh, that's not technically right. But, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I like to go to the source and talk to people like you who know a lot more about it than I do. If I, can, I mean, yeah, I mean, I also would advocate that, you know, you shouldn't, I'm just one person with one perspective and like, um, given the same information, people can have different interpretations. Um, and so, um, for sure, like I would advocate to anyone to, to have a diverse range of people that they listen to for the same information or like the same topics because, yeah, you can't just depend on one person. Um, so I don't think I have all the answers. I mean, I don't have all the answers. So yeah. Um. So I always like to kind of look at someone's development as as they've grown older and how they how that has affected the way they become a scientist and like maybe what kind of biases lie beneath the surface and the way that they grew up. So how did you grow up as a little kid? I know you talked a little bit about playing a lot of sports and being outside with your brothers, um, but then how did that kind of lead into you being a university student, getting involved in biology, and then eventually uh, doing the work that you do today? Mm -hmm. um, for sure, so I yeah, I have two brothers and a sister. I'm like the sec second youngest, um, all quite similar age, but also quite different in terms of like our own interests. Um, I guess, like, I was always quite studious. I, like, the one thing I tell people is, the worst thing you could say to me is, like, I'm disappointed in you. That <laughs> would just make me feel terrible. Um, like, I hate disappointing people. And so I think, naturally, you know, if teachers tell you to do something, you know, I was doing it, right? I was making sure my homework was on time and, like, the best I could. And, like, um, so I was very studious at school. I always worked hard and tried to do the best I could. Um, and then, naturally, I liked science. And I loved, um, I loved, gadgets when I was younger. I was a big like um into like spies and stuff like that and like how we could build things. And then yeah, like we had a lot of like um cool science stuff we did in like primary school, so even before secondary school. But that kind of I felt like I lost some of that teaching aspect when I got to secondary school. Or maybe I felt like it was less cool to do that sort of stuff. Um I mean I wasn't the coolest I was not cool at school. <laughs> I was like the Smart nerds, um, basically, and I don't. I, well, who's I, laughing now? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I am glad um, I've got through school, but um, <laughs> it was before like I wouldn't change what I did or how I approach things because obviously I left to where I am today, and um, it made me realize, you know, things I found most interesting. And I remember, I mean, but I always like biology, and I feel like I was very naive and like. The way education is at the moment is you just have to learn, you know, learn words or learn how to answer. You have to read the mark scheme, right? That's how you pass exams. Just learn. You look up what the answers are, and then you, <laughs> um, you just, you know, it's like um, for a lot about doing well in school these days is just about knowing how to answer exam questions, not necessarily how to think or like actually actually having interest in the subject. Um, and so I feel like there was a lot of questions in biology that didn't, I guess didn't quite add up or I felt like there's a lot still to explore. Whereas I think, I mean, obviously naively, but like things like physics and chemistry, we just had it all sorted. <laughs> we knew everything. So I think this is something that I just found, yeah, naturally more interesting. 
And so, I mean, that's what I feel like, chemistry and physics and maths. And so, like, my undergrad was in natural sciences, which is, like, the Cambridge course that enabled you to um, study different, uh, different science subjects in your past year. So it's for those who like science, but they don't really know what they want to specialise in. So that's why I chose naturally, because I didn't, I like science, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it. Um, but obviously through my first year going to lectures, learning that a lot of what I was taught at like A-level were lies, and that actually there's so much we still don't know um, about biology. And I just, I think with CRISPR as well, when I learned about that, like, wow, we can edit the DNA. Um, I was like, this is cool, I want to do this. Um, and so I sort of just fell into that direction. Um, but I mean, so my older sister is a, a doctor, so she did the medicine at university, and that was something that was kind of like, you know, if you were good at science at school, then they were like, you should be a doctor sort of thing. Um, and even when I was at school, I didn't, you know, if someone said, if you study biology at university, uh, in terms of career options, I just assumed you'd become a school teacher. And I had no idea that, you know, there was so much there is today in like different biotech and different actual researchers. I, I didn't even know that was a thing. Um, so, yeah, I didn't really know what I was thinking long term, what I wanted to do after going to Cambridge. Actually, no, I did. I wanted to be like the next David Attenborough. I think I wanted to be like a TV presenter. I wanted to travel about, be outdoors, um, and do like environmental sciences. Because um, I was really into like climate change um, and as well as like doing my A levels. And obviously, I come to Cambridge doing this like diverse course, and then actually worked out that I preferred biochemistry, which I guess wasn't something I expected. I didn't, I didn't expect that going into it. Um, so, but here I am. So yeah, it's, it's how, I think yeah, what I've learned is that I don't. You never. I. It. I need time to work out what I want to do. Um, but then I'm naturally curious in a lot of different things. And I like being outdoors, which is kind of ironic that I spend a lot of time indoors, like compassing and stuff. But um, yeah, I try to spend as much time outdoors as I can. So, uh, what about like other hobbies? I know you mentioned that you did sports. Uh, do you have time to do other fun hobbies other than sports and YouTube and, and PhD thesis? Um, the genre is very musical as well. Like, um, I love the alto saxophone. Um, okay. Like, I think I wanted to be like Lisa Simpson. I don't know, like, I just I thought it would be really cool to play it. Um, and actually, so I did it, like, after grade 8, I did it what the equivalent is in America, um, like, grades and stuff. But, yeah, I did a lot of lessons in alto saxophone. Wanted to come to Cambridge and join, like, a jazz band. I went to a couple of auditions, and obviously, being taught classical, um, sax like, like, music, I didn't know much about jazz, <laughs> so I wasn't very good. And so I didn't get into any of the bands. But at the same time, I also auditioned. So I, I, as well as playing the saxophone, I have to sing soprano. Um, so I was in like a choir throughout my whole, like from like age of like 10 to 18. And so I also auditioned once I had my offer for Cambridge to join one of their like chapel choirs. So chapel singing isn't something I was familiar with, but just singing in general, I was. And so I thought, okay, I'll just join this chapel choir. And I did get in successfully. So um, that took up a lot of time. So doing like my undergrad with singing and doing football and other sports, um, that yeah, there was no time, even though I didn't get into any jazz bands, there was no time should I have popped into any. Um, and I really like singing. So um, I find it like kind of therapeutic or like, when you're singing, you're very present and you're not worrying about other things. So it was like a good distraction from like, my academic studies. Um, and then I like watching movies, I'm a big film person. Um, and 
Yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure I have a couple of these, but they're my main ones, I would say. I like traveling, hence why I'm here. Yeah. I'm a big karaoke goer, I wouldn't say uh, I'm a chapel person. If you, dig, if you dig deep enough on YouTube and find my personal channel, you can find a couple of songs of me singing. But uh, I, will, I will hide the cringe and leave that for the viewers <laughs> to find. Um, so, uh, kind of a, like a philosophical point of view, um, there's been a lot of, I mean, the world is changing very fast with the way technology has been changing. And uh, YouTube and uh, kind of these wide platforms are contributing to that because you now have this plethora of, of information. In the past you have to in the past you have to go to a library to try and figure out everything that you wanted. Um, but now you can kind of I can just Google a lot of the information and some of it is accurate, some of it is inaccurate, some of it most of it is kind of in this blurry area of, of mostly accurate. Um, but you're part of this landscape now. You're one of these online educators putting out this true or mostly true information. Um, do you have any idea on how to like steer this in, in a good direction and ensure that it's being productive? Or um, how do you want it to go, I guess would be another way to ask it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that's also probably why I've become progressively more uh, cautious over what I say in my videos now that I'm more like, my eyes have been open to like potentially how I could misconstrue people. Um, but it's interesting that you saved this question because I'm actually currently making a video, one of these like book summary videos, um, on a book called um, How Spies Think, <laughs> um, which is like 10 Lessons in Intelligence. And it, the kind of the reason why it's important, why I think it's important to, for anyone to try and read a book like that these days is that you're right, we're just being exposed to information all the time. And the ones who will succeed are the ones who can correctly work out what's the correct information to follow um, and how to you know, distinguish facts from fiction sort of thing. And it's not trivial, like it definitely is not trivial. And um, I'm still trying to develop their skills myself to be able to, to navigate the space. Um, but a lot of it's just about deliberate and active effort to really to, to think about the data that's being presented to you. Um, which is why, like, it might take me longer now to make videos, but the reason that's the case is because I'm, like, personally trying to be more proactive in how I really think about the, what are the, top, the topics I'm talking about and making sure that I do try and present it in the most accurate way that I can. Um, I would be, I would be cautious of people who are able, I mean, maybe they have a massive team of people working with them, but if it's just a couple of people bashing out a lot of content, on a lot of topics, I would be cautious that they really knew what they were talking about. I mean, I guess on a lot of like news articles, I mean, like, use, I feel like an imposter talking about stuff, but at least I'm a biochemist. Like, I have some elements of training that gives me some like credit to what I'm talking about. But there's a lot of, yeah, like, false information out there, and it's, it's really hard if you didn't have that initial, like, background in that topic to know, to, to be able to distinguish a fact from fiction. and. Yeah, I think that's if we developing tools or some way of better being able to, to um, do that, it's going to be really important. But it's also, I would say, one of the biggest problems we have coming. Well, I say coming for private care, it's already a problem. Um, but it's only going to get worse in my opinion, like because content just gets shorter and shorter. Like we've gone from YouTube, which is where I'm still mainly based out, like stories to like TikTok things. I didn't use TikTok, but like it's just. 
you know, and even tweets like that's like a one sentence line you, because of the way uh, you have that short format, it's hard to really convey, you can't put all the information into it. Um, and I also, like, I mean, I'm not the most eloquent of speakers, and I often find it hard to convey my point of view through words, which is why I sometimes struggle on podcasts like these. But, um, yeah, I think, um, I don't know if there's, like, a better way to communicate. Well, maybe that's why I make videos. I think I am a very visual person, and I think sometimes my animations um, give more information than what I can say through words, because you can often misconstrue people through the way I would say something. Um, but yeah, I think that's something that I haven't worked out myself yet, but I would want people to be like more aware of it, that, you know, um, I think being aware of it is the first hurdle that, you know, there is all this misinformation, um, and that you should just be very cautious about what you even mind and who you trust. I mean, I, I recently started watching uh, Bill Nye's show on Netflix, I don't know if you've ever watched part of it, um, and uh, it's just kind of covering a, a whole bunch of different pieces of science. And I watched part of it, and they started talking about how the genome in the heart was different than the genome in the rest of the body. I was like, that's just not true. And so even like typical, like even things that normally I would I would trust, like Bill Nye, the most one of the most famous science educators in the world, is now not always accurate in his information. Um, so what do you what do you think kind of is the best way to educate? I know you said that you like having being very visual, I do too. It's a lot easier for me to learn from, from your videos than from, from a, a review article. Um, but there's also kind of what level you're looking to reach. And I, I'm guessing that's going to vary a lot depending on your audience. Um, but do you think that you have kind of a, a good scientific level to teach at? Yeah, I mean, so as I said, like, I guess I first asked the blog and then the YouTube as a kind of selfish reason to like make a kind of document for myself. So obviously, you know, I've gone through an undergrad education in biochemistry, like I was pitching it at like other undergrads, I guess, at the time. Um, but like, I guess now I try to make it as accessible to as many people as possible. But to go on from that, I think, you know, people are smart, like are more intelligent than they think they are. I don't have to phrase that correctly, but um, I think anyone can learn something. Like there was nothing special about, you know, me that means I'm good at biochemistry. Like anyone can go to the fundamentals, read the same books five classes and get to the same position. It's just a matter of putting in the effort to understand it. So I feel like, you know, if I can guide them through a video, then there's no reason why they shouldn't take something from the video. I think it's just, um, there are loads of like techniques that I'm still trying to learn myself into how to better present science, like the science communication in, in general. Um, there are like right, not right or wrong, but there are better ways than other ways of presenting information. Um, so, whilst I think it does give people who have at least some fundamental um, understanding, I think there's no reason why people couldn't watch my videos and take something from it. Um, also, I mean, the annoying thing is like there are videos that do the more fundamentals, but it's hard for me to be like, you know, go watch these videos first. Um, like I like to build upon things I've already spoken about, which I guess does make it harder for new people to come to my channel and to understand it. Which is probably why I didn't really have a massive channel because it is it is quite a niche and specialised topics that I talk about. Um, yeah, I don't know. I because I didn't don't do the communication full time. It's hard for me to debate. I haven't got the, the time or resources to do to build upon what I do. So I am limited to that, to that extent. Um, but I am conscious and aware of these things, and I want to do better, but 
very low priority on the, on the YouTube algorithm. No one's going to find you and you might as well be censored anyway. Uh, so like, what, where, how do you think the, this should be sorted? Because I mean, if, if you decide which is the accurate sources of information, there's a thin line between what is considered the accurate source of information and what someone wants you to think the, the accurate source of information is. So where, where would you draw that line? I, yeah, I don't know. No. Um, <laughs> a really hard question. And, well, I mean, that's what, yeah, you can say, okay, if you're making the videos such that only I'm going to be the one watching it, why make it in the first place? Well, well because I'm going to watch it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's one still someone. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, I don't know. I think, yeah, them bigger problems we should solve pilots probably. I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's hard. I on my own can't fight against the algorithm. Like I need people on my side, so join the, the good side. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think some of those biggest problems are? Like, what, do you, what would you say are some of the biggest problems that need to be solved? Um, yeah, I should probably should have thought that. I, I mean, like... I <laughs> oh, it was on the question list. It was coming anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, I just think... Um, better understanding than like... I think having better in-person conversations, like better listening to people, um, spending less time on our phones, that sort of stuff. I mean, I, I, it worries me sometimes, like how much dependency we have on our phones. And I mean, it's been, obviously I've benefited a lot from on online communications and meeting people, but there's so much more to be gained from communicating with someone in person um, and learning from other people and realizing some of the global problems we have like with as other species becoming extinct um the fact that we've got this rise of like not just viral infections but all these like bacteria that we're getting more and more bacteria that are like resistant to different antibiotics um and yeah i, I don't know there's a, mm, many things that yeah we should be thinking about uh, yeah I, but I don't really know i think um Obviously, yeah, communication is a big aspect as well. Um, but then, like, how forward's going on at the moment? I mean, how can we not not think about these sort of things and want to help these people out? Um, because, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, personally, I've always thought those those two things are kind of connected in that. Uh, I, I spend a lot of time on my phone, probably, more than probably people would say, like, oh, you spend an unhealthy amount of time on your phone. But, I mean, when I'm on my phone, I'm not always, but hopefully doing things that are productive. Like I wouldn't know about antibiotic resistance. I wouldn't know about all the educational things that are on, on your channel and all these other channels that are out there. I wouldn't be aware of a lot of the events that are going on in the world. Uh, so I wouldn't even know where to put these priorities if I didn't have this, this I didn't have my eyes glued to the glowing brick in my hand. Yeah. Um, so I, I personally have always felt like cell phones get a lot of hate because people just start trying to have a conversation. It, I agree with you that you have to have, you need to be able to differentiate. Like I turned my phone off for the interview, I'm, I'm discussing things with you now. Um, but there's some kind of balance there. I'm not exactly sure what that is. Yeah, well I think, yeah, my, my concern's more with the fact that, because I don't understand like how these algorithms and stuff work, because we have like the, like the echo chambers, right? Like how your worldview is like, 
been restrained without us really understanding it and like how you know my phone suggests certain things and I might be interested in that I end up clicking on because I am interested in it but then I'm missing out on all this other information um and I guess the same like as much as I love that people listen to, to my content like I can say I'm just one person with one viewpoint and one perspective like I don't want to generate a whole world of people with my perspective um, I want people to think for themselves and to learn from others as well so it's trying to find a way to um yeah, to get you exposed to as many different viewpoints as possible. Yeah. Uh, I know Max Tegmark has given a couple of talks because he does a lot of work with AI and machine learning. And that a lot of the articles that kind of pop up due to algorithms or even uh, like the ads on YouTube algorithms will be, they, the algorithms have learned that the best way to get people to click is typically through outrage. And so they'll show you something that may or may not be true, that will make you really mad. And then yeah. you'll say, yeah, the Democrats are evil, or oh, the Republicans are evil. These people are ruining our country. And that's why you have so many angry people based off of the algorithm just kind of doing what you asked it to do. It's, it's maximizing the amount of traffic. And so then you kind of run into the problem of, okay, well, maybe that maybe the algorithm shouldn't be doing exactly what we told it to. Maybe we, we wanted to do something else. But we're still not quite sure what that is. And I think that's a, a very important problem. I mean, because misinformation kind of starts at a cascade, right? So, so many of these, so many problems are, even though misinformation doesn't seem like a, like no one's dying over misinformation, right? But it does cascade. Like when you look at a lot of the, for example, a lot of the work that's done in the Russian military, no one's doing, it's not as much money being dumped into making weapons, it's spreading misinformation in other countries because it's a lot easier to manipulate people into radical acts rather than doing it yourself. So I, I could see that being a, a big problem that being kind of linked to your issue of people spending too much time on your phone. Yeah, and I think yeah, transparency is something I try to advocate for, um, being more open and honest. But yeah, it's really hard to, to achieve that, right? It's not trivial. Um, and I feel like transparency in the algorithm could probably make people more aware, like, oh, I'm getting this because the algorithm knows that it's making me angry. And maybe I shouldn't be so angry because it's, it's exactly. baiting me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I shouldn't feed the internet trolls. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, as a kind of other existential question, do you ponder your own mortality? I, I just left that one in there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think everyone, well, I think everyone would, I, I mean, I definitely think, you know, I remember when I first realized as a kid that, you know, sometimes I'm going to die, like, I was having nightmares for like weeks. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I think about it, I guess not excessively like I try to just live each day one at a time um like I obviously plan into the future and try to think long term about things but inevitably you know I just take things one step at a time quite literally first um and so um I just appreciate each day that I have and the the privilege I have to do different things and speak to different people um that you know I feel like I can die tomorrow and die happy sort of thing I mean I don't want to die tomorrow but I could then I would be happy um well, well, yeah. <laughs> so if Altos Labs called me tomorrow and said, I have the pill to make you live forever, would you take it? Uh, no. No? <laughs> I'm not. Class -class but I mean, like, um, I, no, I probably wouldn't. Just, I think I like the fact that there's an element of knowing that there's a finality um, to, to life that motivates me to want to make the most out of each day. 
Um, I mean, plus, like, a coyote's not going to find me getting hit in a car accident or something. Like, sure. Like, I think... Unless it's a really, really cool pill, but... <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, like, I think, um, yeah, I, I think, yeah, I'd say, I'd say to my fans, I'd say, no, not right now. So, I mean, especially because I'm still quite young and it's, you know, something I'm really worried about, so more stuck in the present, I'd say. Um, you think that penny might change as you get older? Possibly. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting that someone who does so much work in longevity would not take the forever pill. Well, I think there's many reasons why someone would be interested in longevity. And for one, I'm more interested in like health span as opposed to life span, just in terms of like the fact that there's all these different age stage shaped diseases and the quality of life, like even though like not quite related to longevity, but things like allergies. Like I suffer very bad from hay fever, and like that's like such a mild symptom to what some people really suffer with. And I feel horrible during those times when I have like the, the symptoms of hay fever, um, very unproductive. And it's just like I can't even imagine what it's like for someone to suffer with all these different diseases. Um, and so that motivates me to focus more on like the health plan initially. Um. And I guess, yeah, going back to my curiosity about understanding what it's like and how does our bodies work. Like, as I said, things are always, because of the way life is, it's connected to longevity. And so there's the science curiosity aspect, which is the way I study it. Great. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. I appreciate it talking with you. And uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your trip to Boston. Oh, thank you. That's no, been great fun.